Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Todd Donovant, the president and general manager of Sacramento Republic, the USL team playing in this week's US Open Cup semifinals. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I'm in England this week, just arrived here for stories on Euro 22 and I'm visiting Leeds United as well for an upcoming story. So subscribe now and help me continue doing cool stuff like this. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Todd Donovant in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you? I'm really excited. I, I, I realize now that Todd Donovan is in charge of Sacramento Republic, who are trying to be the first USL team into the U.S. Open Cup final since 2008. When Charleston Battery eventually eventually lost to DC United, that's a good bit of Open Cup history that could unfold on Wednesday night. Yeah, and they're hosting Sporting Kansas City, so I think they can win that game um, and, and get to the final. No non MLS team has won the U.S. Open Cup since the Rochester Raging Rhinos in 1999. <laughs> now with a more corporate name, uh, but uh, great! It's a great story, and I'm glad Todd Donovan came on because it's. Uh, Good to get good stories on the podcast as well. Um, I just landed, Chris, here in London tonight on Sunday night. It's about 11.30 p.m. my time. I'm going to be covering Euro 22, as I said. Going to go up to Leeds United this week. I have not been to London since like 2016. What is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was honestly on a pace to go there every year before the pandemic. I was actually going to go again, and it was right during, I think it was Omicron, I forget which wave it is now, uh, and uh, and so I couldn't go. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many football stadiums within close proximity, and so you can just maximize the number of games you go to via train. So yeah, you're, you're, you're back in, in the UK, and, and, and what a perfect time to be there. It is a good time to be here, and you know, it's interesting. I have been to England in the last few years, but it's always been for like Liverpool. I've been to Liverpool a bunch of times, and hmm. just, it, that's just a reflection of who's good <laughs> in recent years, I guess. I've been to Man City several times uh, for my book project, for other stories uh, in Liverpool, but it's been a while since I've been to London, so looking forward to this week and then heading north for a couple of days. Revolutionary thing I did, Chris. Hmm. For the first time in my life, and I've made so many trips now across the Atlantic to Europe, to wherever, from the US, first time I have ever not done an overnight flight. I did a day flight from hmm. like 8 a.m., landing at 8.30 p.m. in London, and I would highly recommend it. Really? Yes, it's revolutionary. It's, it's sort of life-changing, actually, and, and I'll, I'll even feel this more tomorrow, I think, when I have a good night's sleep, because what typically happens is if I have a reporting trip in Europe, I can't land in the morning after an overnight flight and start doing important interviews that day. I need to land the morning of the day before, but if I can actually just fly and land on the same day and have a good night's sleep, I can do interviews tomorrow. I'm not wasting time. I'm, I'm not throwing my body out of whack. I think this is an important lesson. I just feel like when you look back at the end of your life, and look, not every day is going to be a winner, but when you look back and you start doing the accounting and July the 4th, 2022, the entire day was spent on a plane, it just feels like the way, like a waste <laughs> of a day, doesn't it? Like, I would rather use the overnight 
Like, usually the flights out of Miami leave at, like, 10.30 p.m. You land at, like, 8 a.m. local time, and hopefully you get a good enough night's sleep to where you can sustain for the rest of the day. Now, as you have correctly pointed out, I think energy-wise, it's tough to get there when you land on an overnight flight because, let's be honest, unless you're flying business class or first class, plain sleep is not real sleep. It's just eyes closed resting. It's like 60% of what sleep is. So you're still a zombie the next day, but I don't know, it just feels like a waste of a day. But clearly you've been reformed. Yeah. One, you're younger than me. I'm an old man. And so (laughs) overnight flights just kill me. Two, this actually applies to when you're flying from like, say, Los Angeles to New York. I don't do red eyes at this point unless I absolutely have to. And there's a reason for that. And... As long as you have a good Wi-Fi connection, you can actually turn it into a productive day on the plane. I get good writing done on flights because nobody's bugging me. And Hmm. and, in fact, I have thought, I may have told this to you before, I have thought about if I need to get a bunch of writing done and I can get some miles out of it, just flying back and forth cross country and getting writing done on planes. Well, so there's one flaw in this plan, and that is plane Wi-Fi, because most of the time it is genuine crap. So that that would that would be the the one uh, impediment for me. But I understand it. Like I, I I believe when we spoke about this previously, I said that you know you hear about people that on December thirtieth will go circumnavigating the globe to try and get uh, airline miles in order to uh, achieve the next level of status sure. on whatever airline you're on. And I feel like. I agree. I feel like it can be a very good office opportunity, a chance to take advantage, get the computer out, and do work in a very productive environment. I actually find that planes are very cathartic in that way, getting work done in a, in a quiet environment, reading a book when you otherwise wouldn't read a book, watching movies and television shows when maybe your life is too busy. It's a very serene environment to me. I think we're on the same wavelength here. I mean, I have a friend who flew to Tokyo on December 31st once just to get <laughs> the miles necessary to get to the next level. And I can appreciate that commitment. I, I would not do that myself. But um, yeah, it's um, lots of stuff on planes, man, over the years. But the one thing I will say about plane Wi-Fi is in some cases, it's gotten so good that I can actually watch streaming games on plane Wi-Fi now, which makes me even more angry when the Wi-Fi just doesn't work. <laughs> There, there are some where, like, if it comes with, it's like, you know, like how American Airlines they have, like, the list of channels that you can watch. You go to America, you don't have to buy the Wi-Fi, it's just, here's free stuff they were throwing you. Generally, when you use that, the streaming quality is good. All of a sudden, when you go off of that and you try and pull up whatever app, you try and pull up Paramount Plus or something, you good luck even getting the first picture, never mind moving pictures. So, I am here for... Mostly for Euro 2022, and I'm going to go the semifinal on Tuesday up in Sheffield, uh, which I've never been to before. Uh, England, Sweden. Uh, the other semifinal is Germany, France. And I'm really excited about both of these semifinals. I think all four teams are capable of winning this tournament. And the quarterfinals were quite compelling. You know, not always the greatest soccer. In some games, you had teams dominate like France did against the Netherlands, but it was compelling because France couldn't score for the longest time. It goes to extra time. Same thing, similar with Sweden and Belgium, where Sweden totally dominated, but didn't get the goal until very, very late. Then you had England, Spain, which was kind of a classic, 
England coming back to beat Spain and, and find reserves in the last 10 minutes of regular time and, and win it in extra time and Germany just being sort of Germany and, and doing their thing. So I'm really excited about this and uh, there's a lot to write about in terms of the quality here. And it's got me excited for this tournament. It's got me excited for the Women's World Cup next year. Yeah, I think you just kind of rounded up the, the quarterfinals. I think England-Spain was probably the one game where these are two competitive teams that are on the same level that are going at it. And then the two that... It was kind of funny to see almost on behalf of France and on behalf of Sweden, a collective frustration. I saw even in, in the post-match coverage on ESPN, Emma Hayes was almost at her wit's end watching the Sweden team be unable to <laughs> score. And it's like, they just need to do something different. Do something different, please. And France, the same thing. I saw that at, the, at full time, they scored one goal. Their XG was 4.5. <laughs> They just created so many good chances and somehow couldn't put any of them away. The goal that they get, I believe it was from the penalty spot. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. indeed. So uh, it was kind of f funny to see that collective frustration. And now those two teams uh, take on Germany and England sides that were tested. I think Germany probably got through with the easiest quarterfinal, just in terms of they eventually got over the line against Austria. They hit the woodwork a few times, but they were fairly comfortable in the end. But I think these are great semifinals, and I can't wait to watch them. Also, Vladko Andonovsky is here. The U.S. coach was uh, scouting, I guess. So I'm trying to connect with him at some point this week and kind of get a sense of what he's seeing because from a U.S. perspective, I think a lot of fans are kind of scared to death right now looking at these European teams and how many of them are so good at this point. And the best team here at full strength might be Spain. They just weren't at full strength in this tournament. And I, I tell you what, I enjoy watching Spain play. Even when they didn't have Alexia in this tournament, even when they didn't have Jenny Hermoso, my, one of my very favorite players also plays for Barcelona, Aitana Bonmati. And she is freaking Barcelona to her core Spain to her core, and I love the way she plays, and uh, I, I was a little bummed out, actually, that they went out. I like the England team, don't get me wrong, but like, I thought Spain did enough in that game to to win it and pull off what was would have been a surprise just considering the personnel they had. Was she the one who who got forward on the goal on the overlap and had that first touch inside of the England defender and left I think it was Rachel Daly who got left for dead on that on that chance for Spain. Like that whole the whole build up to that goal was sensational. The, it was the sub from Real Madrid who came in second half who mm -hmm. who just owned the right side. So yeah. it, was, it, it wasn't Bomati but it was like um, and I should know her name and I don't right now, but, um, like Vilda, the Spain coach gets a lot of static from their fans, but I thought he actually made all the right moves in his subs and his starting lineup, who he benched, who he played. And, um, I still think, you know, when you're losing the best player in the world, that's going to impact your team. And it has with Spain, but, um, because of that situation, I still think people are going to be very high on Spain as long as they've got their players next year at the Women's World Cup. But um, I'm excited to see also, I, I kind of, one reason I came here to England was to learn a little bit about how this England women's team is connecting. Because I was here in 2012, 10 years ago for the Olympics, and I think women's soccer has advanced a fair amount since then, especially at club level. But the national team as well, the England team, just a better team for one thing. Um, and I'm curious to see if they can kind of go through now. They've got two games to win it and not sort of 
screw it up because I think they're good enough to win it. And if I had to pick one team to win it, I would probably pick England at this point. I, I do want to hit on something that you mentioned, though, uh, which is that the England-Sweden game is at Bramall Lane, which is the home of Sheffield United, and Germany-France is at Stadium MK, the home of MK Dons. These are two teams that are not in the Premier League's top flight. And that is interesting to me. I, I do want to, to to flag up a really good piece of content that Kate Fagan did for our podcast, Off the Looking Glass, on the ban on women's football in the UK that lasted close to fi- close to fifty years. Yeah, and it, and she used it as a, as a way of saying that the way that sports are is not inevitable, right? It wasn't that men's football was always meant to take off in this way because it is the superior sport and people care about it more. If you go back to World War I, women's football was very popular in the UK, and then the FA decided you can't play on our pitches anymore, and that was basically the end of organized women's football. And when a lot of people criticize the venues for the women's Euros in the UK, they're like, well, a lot of clubs weren't banging down our doors to host this tournament. And I kind of wonder now if because of the way that the crowds have sold in the way in which the women's Euros has become a bigger event over there, if they might be regretting that. And it might be born out of over time, women's football just doesn't have the currency over there because of that ban, because of what's it, it's relatively new popularity, certainly relative to the men's game. And I am surprised that Premier League clubs, the, the, the stadiums that usually host either men's international tournaments or hosted the Euros, weren't interested in, in hosting this time and the kind of the inbred sexism in it, but also the way in which that those clubs sort of failed to to catch on a train that's leaving the station right now. I'm still surprised by some of it. You know, Manchester United only started its uh, a first division women's team a couple years ago, and it took them way too long. Liverpool in recent years has been terrible in their support for their women's team. They were actually better at one point. Um, and in recent years, they just, Liverpool hasn't cared. And, and that's tremendously frustrating. So how clubs choose to invest in women's soccer is still a very important thing and it relies on the right people a few right people to like make those decisions but other clubs are doing making those investments and so there is a lot more investment from television from sponsors in the league the women's league here in england than there used to be real madrid just started a couple years ago a women's team so it's it's way too long it took way too long to get to that point but they did in terms of like where these games are taking place, it's a real mishmash for this tournament because the opening game with England in it took place in Old Trafford. They got like 68,000 people for that game. The final will be in Wembley and should be full, especially if England's involved. And so that's good. But then you've got other games taking place in tiny, tiny stadiums. And it, it makes me think back to the 99 Women's World Cup. And, and that in the U.S. was like 20 three years ago, and they made a very big decision that they were going to play those games in NFL stadiums. And FIFA didn't want them to do that at first. They wanted them to actually scale it down and just play it in the Northeast. And the thing we've learned about U.S. fans is they like big events. And if you tell them this is a Women's World Cup or a World Cup on the men's side, they will want to go. They will fill these giant stadiums. And we're not at that point yet, apparently, in England and in some other countries, too. But it's, um, 
I do think it, there's, it, it, it's a reflection of the culture of where we are, but also a few very specific people and decisions that are being made. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of looking back on the, the venue choices for the Women's World Cup in, in 1999, since you mentioned it. The, the U.S. audience is very attracted to international tournaments. Um, even the Women's Euros at times is rated better. Uh, the people have discussed that it's rated better in than MLS games that are going on at the exact same time. People in the U.S. love an event. They love when countries play against each other. This is a very Olympics culture. This is a very World Cup culture. We like international tournaments here. And so people are watching this. And it's really interesting that maybe in other areas of the country where maybe the domestic league is kind of, you know, still the, the sports story on A1. We'll get to European transfers later. When you turn on a UK-based radio station, that's still the number one talking point is where is Cristiano Ronaldo going? What's Jesse Lingard doing at Nottingham Forest? Like, that's still the thing that drives conversation in the sporting culture there. Um, whereas over here, we're just a national tournament. We love national team football here. And so I think uh, I, I, it, there is kind of a major cultural disparity. I think ESPN's done a great job showing the the Euro 22 games. Um, you know, Julie Foudy and Ian Dark are actually going to be together in England this week on site for the games. One thing from my interview with Julie the other day that didn't come out was that she has actually been calling the games with Ian and doing a good job, but she's been in Connecticut and Ian Dark has been in England. And I don't wow. know how you do that when you're calling a game. Well, is he in the stadium or is he, or is he also in a studio? He's like in a in a phone booth somewhere. Yeah, okay. So you basically just get on FaceTime and make sure that you're not talking over each other. Uh, I, I remember the most bizarre version of this is I believe uh, during one of the Olympic games, I want to say, Arlo White was in the stadium in Brazil in Rio and Kyle Martino was the analyst back at the NBC studios in Connecticut. I remember, see, I remember I remember seeing a picture on social media of Arlo White having two screens in front of him. One was the program feed of the game so he can watch replays, and the other was a live feed of Kyle Martino so he can see him speak. It's, it's so funny. Those two guys, if you remember when they did MLS games together for NBC a decade ago, they were literally in the same stadium, but th their gimmick was they made Kyle be on the field in this little contraption overlooking the field <laughs> and they had Arla White up like in the press box area calling the game but they couldn't even let him be in the same room together which I think is a lot easier and they made Kyle like for soccer by the way if you're going to actually have a tactical view you want to be away from the field you don't want to be right on the field and I always thought those NBC broadcasts succeeded despite their producers making them do that nonsense. They were just that good at it and they didn't make it screw them up. Yeah, and, and generally like the cadence of broadcasts are mostly familiar, right? When replays come on in the, you know, after a goal, you, the analyst speaks. So you can, if you've worked enough games together, you can do it without being able to see each other, but it helps. It helps. <laughs> I'm just glad for Julie Fowdy that she gets to like be in the stadium with Ian Dark <laughs> this week. Um, let's talk a little MLS because there was some really interesting stuff this weekend. A couple particular things. Toronto may be the standout case because finally they had Lorenzo Insignia. Finally, they had uh, Bernardeschi playing in this game. They had Crescito. So, and, and Michael Bradley might as well be Italian, by the way, at this point. He speaks perfect <laughs> Italian and, and it's, you know, played in Italy with Roma. And, uh, and so Michael Bradley turns back the clock, scores two goals in this game, including one ridiculous goal. Toronto wins 4-0. Bernardeschi and 
Insignia played just the first half. Crescita looks amazing. And they're Toronto, as bad as they've been this season, are not that far out of the playoffs. And you watch this, and it's just one game, obviously, but you're kind of like, huh, they could get in the playoffs and they could like make a run. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And uh, when when I would kind of like do the scoreboard recaps for Inter-Miami broadcasts, it's like, I think... I think Toronto might have run out of time to get on a run because generally the target to make the playoffs is 50 points. And I think ahead of yesterday, they were looking at needing to get 31 points in 13 games in order to make the playoffs. That's a torrid pace. That's basically winning, you know, three out of every four games, essentially. And that would be fairly ridiculous for them to do that. But then you watch it and you're like, maybe they can do that. And it's funny because I think if you look at the front six, I still think that Michael Bradley to play week in, week out, there are moments where he gets exposed. And if, you know, a team gets hold of the ball against his Toronto team, I'm fairly concerned because I don't think they have enough steel in the front six, certainly to press. And I don't think that, you know, with Michael Bradley in that midfield, like I still have concerns, but goes and scores two goals, they have a bunch of the ball and they beat, they smash Charlotte. But, um, it's still interesting when you look at their back line that they play uh, Kosi Thompson, who's a 19-year-old Academy product, and they have another center back, Lucas McNaughton, who's been in the Canadian Premier League for the last three years. Like, it's, you know, they're still not completely fully staffed, and that's largely because the Carlos Alcedo uh, signing flopped, and so he's back in Mexico now, and they don't, I think, have enough in defense, but my God, that was fun. It was so <laughs> fun to watch them, the goals that they scored. It was funny because... So the first goal is a sensational buildup, right? Back to front, the passing is beautiful, and then the goal comes in because a Charlotte defender clears it off the backside of Jonathan Osorio, and it goes in, and I was like, oh, man, we were so close to like one of those highlight reel Barcelona goals from the early 2010s uh, to, to stamp this Toronto team with a seal of approval, but didn't get the finish that it deserved. But either way, um, it was brilliant. It was brilliant, and it like now, LAFC games from your box office, you want to gather around your TV and watch them, and it's the same for Toronto, because they played some amazing stuff last night. And, and you mentioned LAFC. Gareth Bale gets his first goal, nice goal at Sporting Kansas City. LAFC wins 2-0, continues its rampage in MLS in the regular season here, and Bale's kind of come to play, it looks like. Yeah. So he gets a goal, comes off the bench. I saw uh, Giorgio Chiellini came off at halftime after playing 45 minutes. I think the two of them, after playing uh, against Nashville, were like, it's too hot. I can't work <laughs> under these conditions. So they're being phased into the team, and it goes back to the thing that we've talked about a bunch, which is LAFC don't necessarily need these guys to be great in order to win, but they're going to keep winning anyway. And Gareth Bale getting a goal certainly helps. And we'll see once Bale is, I think, full enough to, or is, is fit enough to start what it looks like a front three with Bale, with Vela, maybe with Brian Rodriguez, maybe with Christian Rango, who scores again uh, for LAFC, right. their opening goal. They still have fit things to sort out, but in the interim, they do so while winning games. And like, there's cool photos of them celebrating, and Chiellini's got his arms wrapped around Steve Cherundolo, and it's, <laughs> it's great to see. Uh, but... It's just amazing what a machine they are. I'm always looking for new stories to do for my writing site, and LAFC might be a good one just to head out there and, and see what's going on there because it seems pretty special right now. Um, I do want to talk about the big preseason friendlies for European teams this weekend. And obviously, these are games that drew a ton of people. 
to stadiums. You had Man City against Bayern Munich at Lambeau Field. Uh, you had Real Madrid, Barcelona out in Vegas, uh, Arsenal, Chelsea. Um, and I, I have a mini rant, Chris, mm. um, here because... I'll clear out for you. Uh, I just want to say... Like, look, this is fun. I am not anti-fun, right? Like, I went to Manchester United against Liverpool in Ann Arbor at the Big House, I think it was four years ago, and it was fun, you know? Like, I'd never been to the Big House before, and, and you know, I, I happened to be staying in the hotel with Liverpool, so I shared an elevator with Jurgen Klopp, and that was kind of cool. But I wouldn't have said it was a big game. Because it's a preseason game. Think about NFL preseason games, Chris. They're not big. Nobody remembers the result. Nobody cares. People go, I guess. At least some people do. And they may watch it. And it's kind of nice when you have, if you're a fan of uh, Real Madrid or if you're a fan of Man City or Bayern Munich, to be able to see your team in the flesh in your country, the United States. And they haven't had the chance to do these tours for a little while here. But... Anyone who says these games are important or that they are big, big games or that they're bigger than actual competitive games that are happening right now, I can't stand that. It kills me because they're not. They're not the biggest games of the weekend. They're being played on ludicrous fields at Lambeau Field. And so I like Lambeau Field. That's great. But like that's narrower than Yankee Stadium is for NYCFC games. And I don't want to be anti-fun, but I just also don't want to say that these are like more important than other competitive games even going on in the United States right now. The size of the crowd and the size of the media network on which the game is on does not indicate the size of the game. And so, yes, Man City against Bayern Munich, biggest soccer crowd of the year. But, by the way, the next four, this is per Soccer America, are domestic MLS teams playing in either uh, domestic competition or in CONCACAF Champions League. So second was Charlotte FC's first ever home game. Third was the Champions League final between uh, Seattle Sounders and Pumas. And then four and five are Atlanta United home games because they draw massive crowds. Um, and then the next five are some of these European friendlies. And it is really cool. And it was great for me to watch Inter Miami play Barcelona uh, last week because... I kind of got to see like the immense quality that those players have. Like Usman Dembele had moments, Memphis Depay had moments, Ansu Fati and Pedri and Gavi. These are some extraordinary players. And it's so cool that American fans get to see these players in person because it is such a high level. It is the highest level. But they're friendlies. And just as when the NFL goes to London, plays four games a year, it might be, you know, the biggest game or like it might draw the biggest crowd. But those are usually on Premier League weekends. And no one in the UK would say, this is the biggest sporting event being held in the UK this weekend just because they fill Wembley Stadium and it draws the biggest crowd. It's a cool occasion for American football fans in the UK to get a chance to watch teams live in the flesh. Hell, might even be their favorite team live in the flesh. But that doesn't make it bigger than what's happening in the actual domestic game. It, it just no, doesn't. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. And, and that's why... I know you work for Inter Miami, so I'll say it. When Phil Neville says that playing my, Inter Miami playing Barcelona is the biggest game in club history, I just lose my mind. It, I lose my mind, Chris, because it's not. And this team, which actually hasn't been very successful at all and has had a lot of issues, like 
there's so many competitive games that you could say are much more important than that. And you're saying this is the most important game in, in, in club history, this preseason game that nobody like should care about the result. And even those NFL games that take place in the UK, those are competitive regular season games. They're not preseason games. And so there's a qualitative difference there. And I think also too, we're not rubes here in the United States. We know what actually matters in the soccer world. And so to act like these preseason exhibitions are like big games or meaningful games is just completely wrong and insulting. And I do worry that these big European clubs just view the United States as a cash register to get easy money because they know that these tickets, they can sell, they sold these tickets for a lot of money for these games that don't mean anything. And it's frustrating to me. And like, th there's even like very little pretense anymore from these big European clubs that come to the US. They at least used to try and arrange interviews with the people, with their club, their coaches, their big name players. They don't even really try that anymore. They don't even care. Like Barcelona's not like putting Serginio Dest out for one-on-one -on -one interviews. They, like, they're not even making the effort. Chelsea, maybe a little bit, not a lot. You know, uh, Juventus, Real Madrid, all those teams. And it just feels like a little, I don't want to say, thank you for coming here. Thank you for blessing us with your presence for this exhibition game and taking so much money out of my pocket. And I, I, I think we moved past that in the United States. I think we're a more sophisticated fan base than we used to be. I agree. I, I do think, though, that it, it underestimates, though, that there are a lot of fans that support Premier League sides, that support Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juve, Bayern, that all came here. And it would be more expensive for them to fly halfway across the world and go and see their team in their home stadium. It's a chance for, you know, even... So, for example, Chelsea Arsenal was in Orlando. And I presume anyone who's a fan of either team in the state of Florida, or perhaps even across the U.S., uh, might have taken a flight or, or made the drive to go and see them. And I don't begrudge those fans, because they don't have a chance to regularly see their favorite soccer team in person. And when you get that chance, it's a really cool connection. I remember seeing Manchester City in Miami. I think they played Bayern Munich. And it was like, all right, I've, I felt a connection to the team. I, I went and saw them play Yan I went and saw them play Liverpool at Yankee Stadium. And I was like, all right. It's like a, it's more tangible. You can feel a connection to those players that are out there, and it's just different to see them in person. Um, so I, I think that they serve their purpose um, in allowing American fans to go and see their teams. Um, you're right. I think very often a lot of these clubs are coming to ring the cash register, but I they, they serve a purpose for American fans. But to basically say that they're anything more than an exercise for their fans to develop a connection to their team more is ludicrous. It's fun. It's, it is what it is. Don't oversell it. That's kind of like my main takeaways on all this stuff. But uh, I am looking forward to the European season starting, obviously. Community Shield is actually taking place while I'm here in England next weekend between Liverpool and Man City. Are you going to go? But, I don't know. I just realized the, the, the scheduling. I, I assume it's at Wembley, which is like the day before no, the it, Euro it, final. I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be just because of... Uh, I think they're... Because it's like Manchester and Liverpool, they're like going to hold it up north. Uh, oh, okay. Well, no, yeah, okay. Then. So they're holding it in Leicester at the King Power Stadium. Oh, that's kind of weird, but at least it makes it sort of closer to there. But like, I don't see what, how you could hold it in Wembley the day before a Euro final here. But, yeah, you wouldn't. Um, to answer that question, no, I will not be going there. <laughs> <laughs> so, just because it's in Leicester? <laughs> I've been to Leicester. I was there during their magical season. But um, 
yeah, I got to keep my eye on the ball here. So I, I may watch it on TV, but it's still just the community shield. Um, but like, we're getting close. We're getting close to the start of the European seasons. It's a couple of weeks away. And so that's what has me excited. And we've got even like the German Super Cup. I won't start my rant about Super Cups and how I think they should all go away because I think raising a trophy and calling that a trophy is idiotic. <laughs> I agree, by the way. <laughs> it's so dumb. I remember... Super Cup. We, I mean, Jose Mourinho will count it for a treble if he can, so... He'll get a tattoo. Oh, my God. That, he, that by the tattoo. way, ter- oh like, not a good tattoo that he got. I don't know if you saw, like, his three European trophies... It's, it, it, he could I, I would have thought that, okay, you're going to take the plunge, Jose, get a tattoo like that on your arm, like right below your shoulder, could have been better. Yeah, no, he, he definitely could have found a better artist for sure. Uh, <laughs> feels like a tattoo you get while you're on vacation and it's like a, it's a storefront that has tattoos. Like, yeah, let me just walk in here and get the Europa Conference trophy tattooed on my arm. Like, it's just the strangest thing to take pride in was finally I have completed the European triumvirate I have won he was crying. the Europa Conference for the love of God Jose Mourinho has not won a major trophy since what when he won the league with Chelsea when he got like and then got fired the very next year like he was won something with Man United right did they win the Europa League the Europa you call that a major trophy I don't call that a major trophy <laughs> winning a league or a Champions League for me are major trophies uh, it's a nice trophy to win but the Europa League is not a major trophy for me so I mean he hasn't won a major trophy since he won the league in 2015 and he's still like I'm winner guy winner you want to you want to win some games hire me I'll help you win like get out of here please. Please. Oh, shoot. That is so funny. Um, speaking of Roma, by the way, Paolo Dybala to Roma. You know, we've been talking about uh, here we go transfers as they get done here. And it doesn't it surprise me, I guess, that this ended up happening this way because you figured that Dybala would probably stay in Italy. He could have gone to Spain. He had interest from Sevilla. But basically, his agents royally screwed up. And he was supposed to go to Inter. They ended up getting Lukaku back instead. And then Inter's like, yeah, we're not interested in Dybala anymore. (laughs) And his agent's probably like, oh, what do I do now? Yeah. And so now he's in Roma. And I think of all the places he could have gone, this is probably a pretty good destination. Yeah, I think Italy is probably the place for him. Um, And I think it's interesting because we've talked about the death of the traditional number 10 and how, you know, Paolo Dybala playing the game in the way that he does might not be suitable for a lot of teams that, on top of wanting to play incredible, you know, aggressive attacking football, like to press to win the ball back so they can keep playing aggressive attacking football, and Paolo Dybala just doesn't fit that. And so, it's funny that Jose Mourinho, who is so defense-first, like, it's everything about, you know, keeping clean sheets, and you win titles by keeping clean sheets, that there is still a room in Jose Mourinho teams for that number 10 player it's always we'll defend behind you we'll play in the 4-2-3-1 you have two guys covering you go do your thing and create your chances I'm not really going to give a ton of attacking ideas to the team but you can do your thing you can create chances you can score goals and you can help us win games and so there is still a room in a Jose Mourinho managed team for a Paolo Dybala and I'm interested to see if he can lift them from I think where they finished seventh last year and and potentially challenge for the Champions League places in Italy it'll be tough but uh, certainly Dybala couldn't hurt. No, and I like what Tammy Abraham did there last season. I think he's a, a terrific player. I just don't 
know if they're capable of making that leap into top three, top four. I guess we'll see. Um, other moves, Jesse Lingard, who had been mentioned as a DC United target with Wayne Rooney, sounds like his agents used MLS teams here to get a deal. So he's at Nottingham Forest, which has been promoted. And am I wrong here? Was Jesse Lingard basically publicly fingered as like one of the leaking sources inside the Man United locker room last season by Ralph Rangnick. Because <laughs> there were a couple of times where he was like, oh, to like media, like, oh, you should ask Jesse Lingard what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising. It was startling to me how every step of the way there was a leak at Manchester United last year. <laughs> like the Athletic might as well have had a microphone in their locker room. Like, for, for as much information as they had on the Manchester United setup, it was like, thing happens, read about it in The Athletic on Monday. Like, it was startling how many leaks there were. But, yeah, I think with Lingard, very clearly used MLS for leverage. Probably didn't understand the situation with the big market teams. Like, all right, I'll take a plane over and see what LA and New York are up to. But the New York teams aren't really into this. Uh, the you know, LAFC have only become into this, but only if you're willing to take $1.6 million for now. Uh, and LA Galaxy might have, but they don't have any free DP spots. And so very quickly ran dry, and uh, he had to go back to the UK. And I think it was all, we had to try and get more out of West Ham, and it just seemed like West Ham weren't budging. And so Nottingham Forest comes in. It's certainly a surprise move. Um, they've done some decent business uh, in this offseason. They're, for me, the team that I think uh, in the run-up to the Premier League season, I have to do the most prep about just because... I don't know their rise. I think they changed manager midway through last season. Steve Cooper comes in. He's got a lot of connections to younger English players because he coached uh, the youth teams in England. And so you'll kind of look up at that team and go, oh, wow, look at that guy. Oh, wow, that guy. Uh, and it's a lot of that, a lot of to, to do with those connections. But uh, Forrester, a team that I think a lot of people will pick to get relegated. But I, maybe with a signing like this, Premier League experience coming into the team, you'll imagine he'll start every game that maybe he can help get them over the line and finish at least in 17th. We should get Dave Murphy from Nottingham Forest, the American executive on here, and he can answer all of your questions about his team. Alexander Zinchenko has moved to Arsenal. I find him to be an interesting player because I sort of underestimated him when he first joined Man City, and I was like, why would Manchester City sign this guy? But as I've seen him more and more over the years, I do think he's a player who can be effective in different positions on the field because when he was playing for the Ukraine national team, he was more of like a central midfielder after seeing him as like a left back, uh, fullback for a, a lot of his time at Man City. Um, I, I, I'm bad at like figuring out, is he going to be like an impact player at Arsenal, though, um, and, and make a difference there? So I, I have no idea. Yeah, I think Manchester City players might be underrated because they play for Manchester City and that squad gets rotated all the time and their players are so good that you can't really tell when they're the depth pieces and they're just filling out a squad or are they amazing players who you don't get to see it because so so many other players get that shine. I think Zinchenko had a couple of international performances that made a lot of people sit up and go, oh, wow, he's a great player. And he just happens to be the 22nd best player in Manchester City. <laughs> and so it'd be curious to me how they use him, uh, whether they want to use him in that central midfield area. It seems like him and Thomas Partey can be a really good combo. Uh, at left back, they have Kieran Tierney, who's a good player, but he gets hurt a lot. And so you have cover at left back. But you're right, though, in terms of figuring out who are going to be the impact transfers, because you know a lot of them are going to flop. 
because that's just the nature of transfers. It's basically a 50-50 proposition. I remember uh, that window when Timo Werner and Kai Havertz and Hakim Ziyech and all these guys joined Chelsea. And I, be- I-, I, s- I said to a friend, I was like, I think half of these guys are going to suck. Because that's just the nature. That's just the nature of it. Half of those guys are going to suck. And I feel and like Timo raised his hand and said, I will do this before anyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to say about Kai Havertz because I believe he scored the winning goal in the Champions League final, but he hasn't exactly lit the Premier League uh, ablaze in his arrival in the UK. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys we talk about every week as new transfers, some of them are going to suck. And so, uh, from an Arsenal point of view, Gabriel Jesus has been scoring a ton of goals in preseason. Uh, if you play fantasy Premier League, he seems like a good shout at this point. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think Arsenal have made some decent signings. We have no idea if it actually lifts them from being a Europa League team, which is what they've been for five, six years now, and actually get them in towards the Champions League places. One other thing I want to talk about here, and it relates to Barcelona and a little bit to Jules Koundé, the uh, French national teamer, terrific young center back with Sevilla, who may go to Barcelona, may go to Chelsea. And it's fascinating to me how often this summer Chelsea and Barcelona have been vying against each other for transfer targets. It's a little weird when you think about it, you know, like Rafinha was certainly one of these guys. There was a lot of overlap with Chelsea players leaving for Barcelona, like Christensen, um, even Aspilicueta could be sold Aspilicueta, now. Aspilicueta. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a, a weird overlap there. And this Kunde thing, is, I love it when we can ever use the term hijack. So Barcelona apparently attempting to hijack the Kunde transfer to Chelsea. And so this is still open here. Uh, at the same time, you've got Frankie de Jong reports saying that he is now potentially willing to take a massive pay cut to stay at Barcelona and to avoid having to join Manchester United. And Barcelona continues to move their second lever of of economic, we're going to somehow discover cash and sell our future out right now. And this just seems like a recipe for disaster at Barcelona. And you're like, why can't people see that? But maybe some people are seeing that. Yeah, I think... The the interesting thing is, is that a lot of the signings are not players that will have a lot of recoupable transfer value. Like, right. like you spend a bunch of money on Robert Lewandowski, like you're not making that money back. That's that's money that's gone. And look, they have three players in Fati, Pedri, and Gavi, and more coming through that will kind of be economic engines if they want them to be. But I just Ronald Araujo is fantastic, by the you're way. Right, that's that's a great shot as well. But I just think that. I don't even know what Barcelona are trying to be. Are they basically trying to say that, like, we're Barcelona again, we're back, we're flexing our muscles, and we're going to spend more money than Chelsea to go get a center back to help this team? Are they trying to win the Champions League? Like, what are they, what are they trying to do? Because I don't, I don't understand why... I mean, look, maybe they just feel like they need a center back. It's a totally reasonable concern. Gerard Piquet is up there in age. You have... Eric Garcia, who maybe can be there at some point. You mentioned Araujo, who's who's a really good player, but I don't know if you know the the depth that they have is good enough with Christensen as well. Seems like a decent center back core, but could, can afford to get better. But if you improve it, do you win the Champions League this year? Because I don't think so. And I just don't even know what they're trying to be. And I don't understand why the members of the club, recognizing that they have come out of an incredibly dire time are basically leveraging the future to go get players in. 
Is there no one at the club who's sitting around going, well, instead of buying players, why don't we actually become economically sustainable? We can't continue on like this. We ha- There's an enormous appeal to playing for Barcelona, for big European stars, as evidenced by Frankie de Jong wanting to take a massive pay cut to stay there. Ousmane Dembele taking a massive pay cut to stay there. But I don't understand why they wouldn't rather be sustainable than just, all right, we're going to you know, sell this off and sell that off and sell this off and have weddings at the Camp Nou and, and all, in the, all in the service of going to get players. Like, going to get players is what got them in this position in the first place because they couldn't handle that Paris Saint-Germain came in and took Neymar off them and it was an affront to Barcelona that anyone could be bigger than them and take Neymar off them. And so they had to go out and flex their muscles and go get Coutinho and Dembele in order to show, see, you can't, you can't hold us down and then the pandemic happens, and the Super League is their only Hail Mary to get out of this position. I don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. Yeah, I, I've always had a soft spot for Barcelona, and, and they're, they're tarnishing it uh, immensely lately. I unfollowed Barcelona on Twitter this week, Chris, when they, they put their NFT up for sale. <laughs> 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 and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm unfollowed. <laughs> yeah, the whole club is up, uh, is up for sale, it would appear. It's just so embarrassing. Um, As always, great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Todd Donovan. Our guest now is Todd Donovan, the president and general manager of Sacramento Republic, which meets Sporting Kansas City in the U.S. Open Cup semifinals this Wednesday at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Todd, congrats on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Good to be here. So... I'm going to start with something maybe a little different. We'll get into the Open Cup semis here in a second. But you won five MLS Cup titles in your playing career. And I know that Jose Mourinho used to call Arsene Wenger a, quote, specialist in failure, which I always thought was not true and, and kind of uncool. But I think it's kind of fair to call you a specialist in winning. And I'm wondering... What sort of characteristics you've seen in winning operations that maybe don't exist everywhere in the soccer world? Wow, great uh, deep question to start off. Um, and I appreciate that. Uh, that that should be the new tagline for me. Um, no, I, I, I honestly, the, the key to success for me has always been um, the collective and the team. And that's ultimately what I love about sports. That's what I found out and figured out why I love soccer is surrounding yourself with great people. And I was a part of some really great teams. I had some great teammates, some great coaches. Um, and that's always been my key to success. I, you know, I was a left back, um, you know, often didn't get noticed, but uh, did my job well and allowed others to do their jobs. And, you know, it sounds simple, but that, you know, having that plus a competitive drive, a little resiliency, uh, some perseverance, all those things end up end up helping. But, um, you know, we we being part of that you know different championship teams there's different makeups to each of those teams and and each of those runs every every single one is a little bit different um but i think ultimately when it comes down to it having that focus in the critical moments and being able to step up to the plate when you know when when a lot's on the line i think that that's always uh, the differentiator and what sort of different perspectives do you have on all of that now that you've been an executive for several years as opposed to the player's perspective? Yeah, I think it's given me, you know, being on this side has kind of given me uh, a little bit deeper perspective because you have more time to think and analyze and you're trying to relay that to the 
team, to the coaches, to you know, learn from each other on past experiences, successes, failures. Um, you know, I think that's a huge part of, of winning is actually losing uh, and understanding why you lost, uh, what happened, analyzing. You know, I'll never forget. So you mentioned the five wins. We we also lost one in 2009 uh, against Real Salt Lake, and uh, I can tell you right now when we lost it. It was probably a week before the the the, the final. Uh, we were uh, at training. Um, you know, funny enough, in the shower. But guys were talking about uh, we shouldn't get championship rings if we win. We should get watches. Uh, you don't use rings, but watches would be more. You know, and so. Already, the mindset was taking uh, us beyond the game, and um, you know our focus wasn't there. We tried to correct it, you know, in real time, but that was the moment where we probably lost the final and and weren't prepared for you know the grind and the battle that was ahead of us. New light shed on a 13-year-old final, which I covered. I, I did not know that. It's interesting. Um, um, a non-MLS team has not won the U.S. Open Cup since, I think it's Rochester in 1999. And Sacramento has a chance to do it. Where does this semifinal on Wednesday at home in front of your fans, where does that rank in terms of important games in the history of your club? Yeah, it's going to be right at the top. I mean, I, you know, you, you never want to compare eras. And this club absolutely exploded in 2014. I was part of the Galaxy then when... Uh, Rodrigo Lopez and the team, you know, had that kind of, they call it the miracle at Bonnie, and it was just an incredible moment that, you know, 20,000 fans got to see, and, you know, Sacramento kind of exploded onto the scene. Um, since then, you know, the focus has, you know, largely been on MLS and moving forward as a club. I think we've used this last year and some of the recent events to kind of refocus and say, hey, how do we move the club forward? And one of the things was we, we need to win. We need to have a winning team, a successful team. Uh, we started off well in league, but also gave ourselves a chance in Open Cup to, to make a run. And, you know, things have, have gone well for us. Our guys have, have been massive in the tournament. Uh, a huge win, you know, kind of different wins along the way. I think we've played five games already in the tournament, which adds a lot of congestion. But, you know, our guys have, have been great about it. And I think our, our staff has been really smart about how they've managed the group. Um, you know, and so with this game coming up, we are going to have a sold-out crowd. It sold out in, in a matter of minutes, frankly. Uh, it was crazy. We've never seen anything like that. It's going to be shoulder to shoulder. At Heart Health Park, there'll be more people in there than, than, than ever uh, before. And I think the atmosphere, the excitement, all of those things are going to be truly special, and it's going to be a night to remember. So we're looking forward to it. It's interesting because I was playing a game recently with some friends where we were trying to figure out the most populous U.S. city we have not been to. And literally, mine was Sacramento, California. Uh, so one, I want to rectify that. I'm sorry I won't be rectifying it next week. I'm going to be in England on a story. But if you make the final, it, is, do we know where the final will be? Yeah, the final will be in either Orlando or... Uh, actually, I don't know. We would not be able to host the final. Okay. I know that. So um, I would have so to that... rectify it some other way then. But um, it, it will be We can be make rectified. that happen, Grant. <laughs> We can make that happen any anytime, 100%. I would look forward to it because the culture of soccer in Sacramento is something I've been paying attention to for a while. How would you describe the culture around soccer in Sacramento? Uh, you know, it's different here. It really is. I think, you know, when I first came, it hit me pretty quickly that, you know, when I was taking an Uber from the airport uh, to my hotel, uh, the Uber driver knew about the team. He wasn't a sports fan. He didn't 
certainly didn't know anything about soccer, but he knew about the Republic. He knew we were planning to build a stadium downtown. He, and that is what you hear and see all around town. You see the gear. Um, the team truly matters. So, you know, the support, uh, the, you know, even media attention, frankly, we, you know, we, we're on NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox is our partner. Um, when we make big announcements, when, when things happen, everyone, you know, across the board covers us. You don't get that in most, you know, major markets and, and certainly most major league soccer markets. So it is special here. It's different. You know, we have the, the NBA Kings, um, you know, certainly, uh, but beyond that and, and the, you know, the Rivercats, our AAA baseball team, the Republic it has really found a great place in the hearts of sports fans here. And it's a great time. People love coming out to the games and our support has only gotten bigger over the years. You've eliminated some prominent teams during your Open Cup run, LA Galaxy, San Jose Earthquakes, Phoenix Rising. In what ways have you as a team prioritized this tournament? How has this run come together for you? Yeah, we we always prioritize Open Cup and and you know, in fact, we we try to put some buys in our league schedule um strategically during this period, so during during May, during June, so that we give ourselves a little bit of a chance because we don't have a 30-man roster. We have a 20 to 22-man roster. Um, so to be able to do both competitions becomes challenging. Um, so yeah, we you know we have put some strategic buys in there. Uh, the tournament itself is is such a great tournament. Uh, I think anyone you would ask would say uh, they would like to win it, uh, but they also have to make trade-offs. And you know we have to make trade-offs. We played um, you know lower division teams. We played. Uh, division one teams and you have to make trade-offs and you have to try to you know advance and you know do that in the most efficient way possible uh, with your roster and I think every team has to go through that for us uh, we've been all in on the tournament um, you know and like you said we've had some very good opponents uh, and the fun part is is you get to see uh, some disparity between levels and you know that, that David versus Goliath is a great story. It's something everyone can relate to, and I think it's what's been fun for us to kind of capture some attention uh, and that we're punching above our weight. It's something Sacramento's always loved to do, and uh, you know, being not being you know the first city that comes to mind when you talk about California, but uh, we got a pretty thing, pretty good thing going here, and I think it's something that you know our fans and, and the people of Sacramento take a lot of pride in. I feel like the Open Cup is slowly making gains as a tournament and how it's viewed around the country. And part of that has to do with the games being available on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, and you can see the games, you can watch a night of games. Uh, my friend Hurt Gomez and, and Sebi Salazar even did a whip-around show one night on ESPN+, Plus with what they do, and I think that's all great. Do you have any ideas for even more what could be done to make the U.S. Open Cup an even bigger tournament in the U.S.? Yeah, I think the interest comes when there are cup sets, as they call them, uh, when you have lower division teams beating um, higher division teams. It's just fun to see. It's fun to watch. That shouldn't happen, right? But it does. Um, and, it, and it's something that I think captures the imagination. So the more the Open Cup uh, you can 
highlight those stories, highlight those opportunities. And, you know, I've heard some some different ideas that I think potentially make a lot of sense of letting lower division teams host uh, the games, you know, against higher division teams automatically if they so choose. I think that makes a ton of sense because you're going to get bigger crowds, you're going to get more excitement and potentially more cup sets, which is what people enjoy seeing, um, you know. And so I, I, I think that's that's a that's one that makes a lot of sense. I know there's logistics and, and other issues with that, but I think uh, without a doubt is something that that makes sense. You know, when I was with LA Galaxy, we lost two or three years in a row to North Carolina. You know, we, we traveled there three years in a row. It was a quirk in the schedule. And for some reason, that was always our first opponent. And, um, you know, we didn't have the right mentality going into those games and ultimately uh, lost every single time. But that's interesting. And it helped North Carolina in terms of their interest in the fans. And um, I think that that's one that, that, that could make a lot of sense. Do you mind me asking sort of like when you take on Kansas City or the L.A. Galaxy, how much more is their team salary? Like, how many times more is their team salary compared to yours? Yeah, our salaries aren't aren't published. Obviously, um, MLSs are, but I think it's it's probably safe to say there's probably a twenty x multiple um, involved there, and you know that that is that is what it is. Um, you know, the the fun part is for our guys; they get to go out and and you know. Uh, try to to show why they sh- why they belong and you know prove themselves that's that's why we play the game and that's why we all you're all competitors and, and everyone wants to win so uh it's the same when uh you know when we played uh central valley fuego who's a who's a league one team or portland timbers u23s i mean this is this is the disparity you know there was a, a disparity there too um and those guys wanted to come out and, and take us down so that's fun i think that's that's the fun stuff uh when i was a college player i loved you know scrimmaging against MLS teams, getting those friendlies in, um, because it's a chance to, to, to test yourself, to prove your mettle. You alluded to it earlier. Sacramento's obviously had a long history pursuing becoming an MLS expansion team. There was even an announcement that it was happening. Then Ron Burkle pulled out of the ownership group. Where are we right now on MLS possibilities with Sacramento? Is it still being pursued or, or is it not being pursued at this point? Yeah, we've said all along we're going to continue to pursue it. Um, you know, the lead investor has always been kind of the, the last piece for Sacramento. We've got... Uh, you know, we sort of checked the box and, and, and then some in terms of our market and proving that we'd be a great MLS market. Uh, we've also got a downtown stadium plan, uh, you know, with, with city alignment that you just don't often see. Um, it's an incredible, uh, you know, piece of property downtown that, that, that we're ready to build on. And uh, so we're going to keep keep pushing on that and we're not going to stop. I think that's one thing that Sacramento doesn't do. That's, you know, our, our if you want to boil down our identity into one word it's indomitable and that's in the city model city motto and it's you know essentially it's perseverance it's it's the idea that you're not going to be defeated you're not going to you're not going to be subdued so that for us is what we're about and uh we're going to keep going but we're also not going to wait around and i think that's that's what we've tried to do uh in the last 12 months is take destiny into our own hands a little bit and uh, build a new stadium with or without MLS. And I think that's that's what we want to do. We want to move the club forward. Our fans deserve it. Our team deserves it. Uh, this community deserves it. And, and we think that's a, a path forward for the club uh, in either scenario. What is your sense of the USL, the league you're in right now, and, and its future and what they're doing? USL continues to grow. I mean, it's been... 
Uh, it's a, you know, I mentioned 2014, how far the league's come in just, you know, these last eight, nine years is remarkable. Um, you know, and you're seeing a lot of teams building their own, you know, soccer-specific stadiums, having controlling their venues, uh, growing revenues, growing, you know, having player sales, um, you know, transfers on the worldwide market. I think there's, uh, there's an appetite for it. And there's also a, a very much a place for USL in the, in the soccer landscape in this country, which is still, people don't give it enough credit. Soccer is young in, in America. It just is, um, you know, it's, uh, having, you know, MLS being around for, I don't know, 26, 27 years now, uh, USL, uh, is still forming, you know, there's a lot of teams that are popping up in places you would have never thought there would be soccer teams and then having them do well. I mean, who would have thought Cincinnati, who would have thought Sacramento, who would have thought Orlando and all these places, uh, popping up. It is cool to see. Um, but it's also new and it's young and, uh, that for me is fun. And USL is a, you know, a major, uh, reason why, uh, a lot of these markets are coming online and, um, and, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. One thing I did want to ask you about, you know, you've been with Sacramento for four years now, but before that you had 2017 with a team called the San Francisco Deltas, which won an NASL title in their first season and then folded. It's, there's some really interesting stories out there that people have written about that one season. How would you describe that whole experience? <laughs> How much time do we have on the podcast? I, <laughs> um, I could go on for days on that. I mean, it was an incredible two years. We had kind of one year in, in 2016. That was, you know, I, I retired at the end of 2015. I think I was the fifth employee at the club um, and had the small task of putting together the soccer operation uh, you know, creating a merchandise line uh, from scratch, and then also being in charge of sponsorships. So, I um, <laughs> I was lot. really happy that my marriage stayed together, and I you know kept some friendships along the way. But uh, no, it was just an incredible experience. Um, we had a year to kind of build the club up. Uh, we joined in you know NASL in 2017. Ended up being our first and only season. We found out midway through that year uh, that we weren't going to be coming back. Uh, and yet the team, the players, uh, you know, Mark Dos Santos as head coach, uh, best hire we made was, uh, you know, turned it into a positive and into a motivating factor and, you know, kind of propelled, uh, the, the, you know, the way through the rest of the second half of that season and ended up, you know, winning, winning the last NASL championship. Um, it was incredible. And those players, you know, we still, keep in touch. Um, it was a very tight knit group. Uh, so many great stories came out of it. And a lot of people still in the soccer landscape, uh, that were involved in that. Um, I'm curious to know, sort of, you've had this very interesting experience. You've won so much as a player in MLS. You've been an executive with different teams in different leagues. Um, it's still possible, obviously, that Sacramento could join MLS at some point. What do you want to do in your career? Do you have a specific desire to, to be an executive with an MLS team at some point? What do you want? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I try to be as present as possible. Of course, you're always, as, as a competitor, as, you know, being in this business, you, you want to push yourself and be at the highest level possible. Um, you know, I've always taking things one step at a time that was how you know I was never ready as a 16 year old to sign a professional contract I needed to kind of go to college have four years there take you know get drafted 
it was always step by step and that's that's how I've lived I, I've never taken shortcuts and uh, always try to earn everything I get and um, you know I, I absolutely love it here in Sacramento we have a great owner in Kevin Nagel who who without him this club doesn't exist um, and you know he supports everything we do and I'm so thankful for him for this opportunity uh, you know to be able to first be a GM with a club for four you know three three years and then be able to uh, add the president title to that and be able to um, you know do a lot on that side so it, it's a truly an honor to be here and um, you know I, again I, I think we have unfinished business in Sacramento we've got this open cup run uh, we've got league ambitions uh, there's there's still a lot to do here and um, you know from there only good things happen Todd Donovan is the president and general manager of Sacramento Republic, which meets Sporting Kansas City in the U.S. Open Cup semifinals this Wednesday at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Todd Donovan, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.